The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me, if you will, please follow in your Bible or use the Pew Bible to see Luke chapter 22. I've said we are hoping to finish Luke at Easter Sunday. It's not far away now. And I'm really just highlighting incidences that come out particularly clearly or differently from a different viewpoint in Luke than in the other Gospels. There are so many things we could spend many weeks, of course, in these last few chapters, but we won't be covering them comprehensively. Luke 22 is the scene, contains the institution of the Lord's Supper earlier in the chapter, beginning at 14 or so, and Christ is there, institutes that supper, says that the hand of his betrayer is with him on the table. I'm always amazed how the gospel then goes in verse 24 to talk about the dispute about who was greatest. You know, you would think they'd be caught in holy thoughts after the institution of the Lord's Supper, but they were arguing who is greatest. Jesus knew this. He acknowledged that they would be leaders in his kingdom, but I think he implied to them that they probably had some comeuppance coming their way to deal with that pride they had. And we see this for one of them now in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. I'll read a passage here and then skip ahead a bit. Jesus speaks to Peter and uses his earlier name. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now I'm jumping ahead to verse 54, and in between is the Garden of Gethsemane scene, disciples with him praying, and then the arrest, the troops who came to capture Jesus. He went with them, of course, willingly. Verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, 
the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of our God. I say to you this morning that failure is one of those experiences in life that most of us do somewhat frequently and also skillfully. In 1928, I've read about an important meeting that happened many years ago, just before the beginning of the Great Depression, when a group of men who were at that time known as some of the most able financiers in the entire country were gathered for, I guess, a kind of strategy meeting. Seven of them met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. These men were on top of the business and governmental world. In their various ways, it was said that they controlled more wealth or could influence the movement of more wealth than the U.S. Treasury contained. Someone had an interest in this meeting, and remembering it, 20 years later in the late 1940s, after World War II, followed up to say what happened to those seven very important, very successful men who met in Chicago. Very interesting what was documented. First of all, Charles Schwab, head of the largest independent steel company in the United States, had many troubles near the end of his life and died broke. As did wheat speculator Albert Cutton. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, who was at that meeting, Richard Whitney, spent time in prison and was still in prison at the end of World War II. An earlier member of the president's cabinet who was there, Albert Fall, had been pardoned from prison so that he would be able to die at home. And then the remaining three, all were suicides. Jesse Livermore, king of Wall Street in his day. Leon Fraser, president of the International Bank. Ivar Kruger, the head of one of the world's largest monopolies. 20 years after they were at the pinnacle, every man had seen devastating failure of some kind in his life. And I say to you, failure is one of those experiences in life that most of us do frequently and even skillfully. And if you doubt that or you say it hasn't happened to you that way, then maybe you better be on your guard for something that might be still ahead for you. I can never escape the human portrait of Simon Peter, the fisherman, the muscular, man's man, as we left him in verse 62 of this chapter of Luke, with his shoulders heaving with sobs and bitter tears flowing down his cheeks. He is a biblical failure in that moment. And he answers the type of other biblical failures. Think of Samson, the mighty man that nobody could defeat at all as long as he had a semblance of godliness about him. But when his pride overtook him, you remember his enemies captured him and gouged out his eyes and made him work like a a mule pulling a machine. Samson 
was a failure until the last hour of his life when he called again on the power of God. King David, whoever had greater success than he, handsome, skilled, musically talented, a literary giant, undefeated almost in war, admired for his wisdom, king of Israel, lying flat on his face, crying out to God his confession of sin in Psalm 51 when he became a great failure. We need to know, maybe some of you personally need to learn, that the God of the Bible loves particular kinds of failures, repentant ones. Repentant failures are God's delight. And we're going to learn about one here today. He delights in forgiving and restoring men and women who've come to some point in life, whether through their own deliberate wrongdoings or sin, or sometimes just because of circumstances that have happened and not of their doing, but some aspect of life to them is smashed and a wreck, and they're looking up from the bottom saying, what do I do now? Can they do what we know Peter did? Look to their God for grace. If they will, such persons are the raw material from which God's choices, saints, are formed. I've had occasions in counseling people sometimes when they come to a a crisis in life or a difficult thing or something's broken apart, and sometimes I find that people have the hardest time just believing that failure can happen to them. Now, there are people who, who are way at the other end of the spectrum and think they can never do anything right, but there are folks who've had maybe more of a success syndrome, and something comes apart, a marriage or whatever, and, and they think, how could this happen to me? And I challenge them sometimes. I say, sit down. Would you sit down and write out other failures, other broken things in your life? Perhaps just to introduce them to the idea that failure is more normal than they seem to think it is. And the length of the list of times when you've been broken, you haven't followed through on a job, a relationship has gone wrong, or, or something has just left you feeling devastated, is usually longer than most people want to admit, even for rather successful people. Failure need not be the end of anything. In fact, it can be a really redemptive beginning of new things. But it won't come by simply wallowing or sitting there and feeling sorry for yourself. It will come as you come in real honesty and repentance to God and seek his grace in Jesus Christ to be applied to the broken place in your life. First of all, today, a short point. I want you to recognize as we look at Peter that failure overtakes us all despite our strengths. Peter was a strong man, and that's why he's so instructive. We are tempted sometimes to believe if you're a person of certain strength, whether it be in your career, in your relationships, you have a great marriage, whatever, that it's never going to be anything but that. Well, I can tell you there are very few people who are happy in an undiminished way all their lives. Happy people can get depressed. Leaders who are effective can waver in their decision-making. Successful people can hit bottom. I found a question 
as I'm often involved through the church staff process when we have to replace a staff position. I'm not an expert in the interviewing field. Some of you are probably much better at it. But one question that I've begun to ask people if no one else asks it in an interview process is this. I'll say to someone, I want you to tell me about some important failure you've had in your life, whether personal or career or whatever, sometime when you knew you failed, and what did it teach you? And if I ask that question and the person just hesitates a very, very, very long time and can't answer, I'm wary. I'm not sure I want to hire that person, quite honestly. If they have not seen some time in their life when they've really been on their face and been weak and didn't know what to do next apart from the strength of the Lord. Well, it's Simon Peter, of course, here who we're talking about. Judas isn't documented too much in Luke. The other gospels tell more about his going out and hanging himself and so on after what he had done. But Peter of the remaining 11 is the one whose fall Luke concentrates on. Your children's nursery rhyme told you that Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Well, Peter is the Humpty Dumpty of this chapter of Luke. He was notably strong. There are a lot of things we could say about Peter, about how strong he was. For one, he was courageous, physically courageous. It was he who drew the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Luke doesn't name him doing that, although verse 50 does say one of them struck the servant of the high priest on his right ear. Others named that it was Peter. He was ready to defend Christ. He was ready to charge in and not be afraid. That's a commendable thing. He was loyal to Christ. Remember the time much earlier when some were abandoning Jesus and he issued a challenge to them and said to the disciples, are you going to leave me too? Peter was the one who said, Lord, to whom would we go? Where would we go? You are the one who speaks for God. Great loyalty. And then he, t- he also had great doctrine. He understood spiritual things, for he was the one who said to Jesus, first of the others in the Gospels, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He, he was the spokesman. The Holy Spirit opened his mind to see that and profess it and cling to it. So here he is, courage, loyalty, good doctrine, Wow, those are great qualities for a strong leader. And yet it would seem, perhaps, that it was strength taken for granted that became his difficulty. If a tough, persistent, take-charge Peter could break under just a little push of temptation or confrontation, then it would say to me that literally no one is immune. Well, secondly, I want you to see how the tempter, Satan, is involved here. Jesus personifies evil and says, Satan is the one who determines to have you. Interesting how he poses that scene as if Satan has to ask God, in a sense, to get at his people. Satan is determined to sift you. Let's look at how the tempter discovers weakness in the strongest of people. And in a Peter, it was overconfidence, you could say, that was always venturing beyond its depth. I like to think of Peter as being like the, the little child, a little girl maybe, who is first taught how to swim. And she's in the family or a neighbor's pool and learns to dog paddle and keep herself afloat and, and can go across the width of the pool. What is it, 20, 30 feet? Look, Mom, look, I can swim. Look, look, I can swim. 
and decides that the next step is to swim the English Channel. Uh, It's not going to work, as you would guess. But that was Peter. He could float, he could paddle, and he was ready for the English Channel. I've read about one of my heroes. I'm sorry he was on the wrong side of the Civil War, but he was still a hero. General Robert E. Lee, one of God's great men, a godly man, a wise man, an amazing man of talent. Lee, as you know, in the early part of the Civil War was almost unbeatable. Everywhere he would turn, he popped up where the Union didn't think he was. He had daring raids. He, he used smaller forces to defeat larger forces and so on. And boy, the Union just didn't know. They kept changing generals. You know, they had a revolving chair of head general and they couldn't beat Bobby Lee. Well, Lee came to Gettysburg having been ill for a period of time, pretty severely sick actually. He was recovering but still physically weak. And some say that perhaps his judgment was not what it should have been at Gettysburg when on the final day of the battle he ordered that infamous charge of Pickett's division to go against the middle of the Union line. His own second-in-command, Longstreet, came and said, General Lee, don't do this. This won't succeed. But Lee said, no, we have to do this. And some said Lee had picked up what they called a habit of winning, almost like his army was invincible and they couldn't be defeated. And he said, Pickett and the others, take your men, form up, aim at the center, go. And you probably know what a defeatist charge that was. The men came back, ragtag, half of them killed or wounded, and the South had obviously lost that battle. And they say that tradition has it at least that Lee was sitting on his horse watching from a distance, saw it fall apart. And he said, all my fault, all my fault, he realized his defeat and his misjudgment. Jesus warned Peter that Satan had painted a target on his back. Peter, oh, actually, by the way, he called him Simon, probably because that is the name of weakness. You know, Simon meant little stone, Peter meant rock. Little stone, Satan wants to have you. He's going to have you. Satan had painted a target, but Peter swaggered right in. And, you know, he didn't, that, he didn't hear that. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison and to death. What are you saying? He can't have me. The Bible says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then to add to it, to his overconfidence, came this other weakness that Peter failed to pray. He'd been urged to do that in the Garden of Gethsemane right before this. Pray that you may not enter into temptation, Jesus said in verse 40. I didn't read. And more graphically stated in some of the other Gospels, pray, men, pray. And Jesus came back and found them sleeping. They didn't take it seriously. They did what we do, pray after the fact. After the crisis breaks, that's when we pray, right? We don't pray to be forewarned and forearmed. We pray after. We say, Lord, why is this happening to me? It's not supposed to be happening. Lord, help, help, help. When we didn't pray before. And sometimes it's hard to even have a relationship with God before. And then comes the third weakness that the enemy exploited with Peter was simply that he feared human opinion too much. 
You know, it's real easy to think you don't care what other people think of you, but you do. I probably, through much of my young adulthood and maybe even until I was 40, thought, I don't care that much what people think of me. I stand in a conservative cause and for things that aren't popular, and I know I'm going to be derided by some, and so I just don't care. But I've found out I do care. If you actually do get wiser as you get older, that's one of the wisers for me. I care what people think of me. And I'm subject to doing things because of what people think of me. Well, here's the scene. A courtyard house, probably two wings coming out with an open courtyard in the middle and a wing of private living quarters across the back, a U-shaped structure. There were porches down the sides flanking the courtyard. Jesus was brought to this high priest's house in the middle of the night, two or three in the morning. People were stirred up. There were guards there who had brought him, had arrested him, and they stayed around. And members of the household were stirring, of course, because something was happening. And Peter, and another gospel says John was there too, came into that courtyard right there where the the guards and the servants and everybody were waiting while Jesus was being interrogated on a porch probably outside the house, no farther away from me than maybe the third row of, of you folks are. And they were watching and listening to see what would happen. There's a commentator that speaks about Peter coming and sitting down at this fire attempting to warm himself. And that man said, there is no legitimate warmth for people of God to be gained at campfires of unbelief. Peter found that was true. The amazing thing is, what a little thing it was that tripped Peter up. Not a soldier come to arrest Jesus, you know, let's have a sword fight. Peter was ready for that, he'd take that on. But it was an innocent remark from an unarmed person, a servant girl, who wasn't threatening to Peter. Peter probably still had his sword, by the way, stuck under his tunic. He could defend himself. It was a girl who came and made a remark, maybe like your waitress would make as you sit down at the table and she bantered with you a little bit before taking your order. And she said, oh, aren't aren't you from Galilee? You must be with that guy. Not me. Just like that. He couldn't even stand up to a girl's casual remark. Someone else, but surely you are a gal. No, not me. And then somebody else, it says an hour later, he had to sustain this thing. He didn't get up and get out of there thinking this is a bad place for me to be. He should have left. It says he was there at least another hour when someone said, aren't you from Galilee? You No, I don't know what you're talking about. And Luke is a great dramatist because he writes, even as Peter finished speaking, the rooster crowed. Imagine that landing on Peter's conscience all of a sudden. What may we learn from this? It certainly isn't encouraging initially to hear that failure waits for us, that we're going to fall to it and go through it as skillfully as Peter did. But I would say to you, there are some wonderful notes of grace in this passage. I'd like to point them out to you. First of all, this. What can we learn? We can learn that before we fail, Jesus Christ has prayed for us. I love 
verses 31 and 32. As Jesus announces the surety of temptation, of Satan's determination to attack God's people, he puts right on top of it in the same sentence, but I have prayed for you. Now, Peter didn't hear that. He remembered it later, but he didn't remember it immediately. And Jesus here is addressing him by his, his name of little stone, a weak person. Weak disciple, I have prayed for you in advance that your faith may not fail. Was that really meant just for Peter? Or is that something Jesus does for all his disciples? Hebrews 7.25 underscores the same idea with a great word that says he always lives to make intercession for us. We at this season of the year as we come near the celebration of the cross and resurrection make much and well we should make much of the idea of Christ once for all dying, shedding his blood, becoming the atonement for sin and all those important things. That's paramount. Things he did once in history with a lasting effect. But here's something he's telling us that he keeps on doing. I pray for you. I pray for my people who belong to me. You know, when you get in a crisis, a legal matter, have a car accident or something, somebody might advise you, say, boy, you better get a good attorney. Hey, I'll give you my brother-in-law's car, by the way. You need an attorney. Well, 1 John 2, 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. God's people, in effect, you know, you might possibly work for a company. I guess there are these arrangements where the the top executives, I'm not an expert on these things, but, you know, are known that maybe they'd be sued for things they did on, and so the company, of course, has an attorney on retainer. That if they, the corporate managers or president or whoever is sued, their attorney's already there, ready to spring into action. Well, we have an advocate on retainer with God the Father, we who belong to Christ. And he prays for us. He sustains us. He carries us. He maintains us. Because he knows we on ourselves and on our own strength are going to fail. The second thing here that we can learn is this. It's my favorite part of this passage. You can learn that Jesus Christ looks upon you with an infinite forgiveness. This is something that that is unique to Luke. The other gospels don't tell it. Look at verses 60 and 61 again. Immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I love that. I don't know how far away, but I'm, I'm guessing no more than 50 or 60 feet. Jesus wasn't that far away. And he looked across interrogators and soldiers and high priests and people gathered around him, speaking to him angrily, and he sent a look that one man received. Nobody else caught it. Peter, of course, is the one who told us about this later on, told Luke about it. A look that maybe was just a few seconds long, But for Peter, it must have seemed like it lasted at least a half an hour. You husbands and wives know about looks, right? Ladies, you know how to do it to us. When the husband's, uh, you know, getting a little bit 
out of something he shouldn't be in. My wife's real good at reining me in. A little nudge, a little look, we'll do it. And it works the other way around too, but a look. And we think, what was that look? Was it fierce and glaring? Was it, I told you so? You heard me predict that was going to happen. I think if that had been the look, Peter would have been a dead man. If it was an I told you so look, Peter would have mimicked Judas and killed himself. I really believe that. Now, yes, I'm speaking from a point of subjective interpretation, but I believe with all my heart that that look was a look of unconditional love. And it saved Peter's life. It hurt him. It stabbed him. But it also gave him the balm that he knew all that his Savior had known about him. And he hadn't rejected him. And yes, he went out and wept bitterly. But he didn't kill himself. And then thirdly, I say to you this, that Jesus had prepared in advance for Peter's restoration. He said to him, when he predicted this is going to happen, he said, when you have turned back to me, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? In predicting it was going to happen, he predicted the return, the restoration. You, Peter, once you're broken by this, once you've been smashed this way, are going to be able to serve your brothers and strengthen and lead the church. Because Jesus knew Peter would come into what we call a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Not a deathly sorrow like that of Judas, which was only regret and couldn't be remedied. Peter's sorrow was what Psalm 37, 24 was talking about. When the godly man falls, he will not be hurled down headlong because the Lord is the one who holds him up. And then you have that wonderful scene in John 21 on the beach when Peter is restored. And Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, and restores him and lets him come back with a strength that he didn't have before. I can exactly remember the experience of my childhood in the days when something broke on the lawnmower. You didn't just go down to Lowe's and buy a new lawnmower. Some bar broke on our lawnmower. I was using it. That's why I remember that. And uh, I said to my dad, look at that. That that whole bar is broken. Dad took it off and said, we're going down to the machine shop. He knew a man who was a welder, took it there, small machine shop. And he, I guess he had called and arranged it, and we got there, and I'd never, I didn't know what welding was. I never saw it before in my life. And the man brings out his torch and flips down his, his mask, and on comes the blue flame. And I watched, fascinated. I had no idea what that thing did. Two pieces of metal, simple steel bar, welded back together. And it didn't take but a few minutes, and we left. Dad paid for it, and we were in the car, and I said, Dad, I know that when you glue things together, a lot of times they just break again. Won't that break? And I always remember my dad saying, son, if that weld is done right, that's the strongest place on the bar. The rest of the bar will break before the weld breaks. And I checked that with a welder in our congregation. He said, that's right. The weld is the strongest place. A bone, doctors know this. If it's healed right, that is. If it's set correctly and a bone breaks and 
and then it heals, if that bone breaks again, it's probably not going to be right there. It's going to be somewhere else. I believe there's a great lesson for us. When God heals us, when his repentant child comes and says, Lord, I've blown it, I've failed, I don't know if it was all my fault or not, but I certainly acknowledge I had a large part in it, I've made a mess. Lord, forgive me. Lord, heal me. He will. He does. Examples are all over the scriptures. Remember King David. Remember Samson at his very end. Remember Peter. Jesus Christ loves to heal his broken people. In Isaiah 42, 4, there was a prophecy that applied to him that said a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out in the man or woman who is most bruised, whose flame is down to barely a spark. If that one comes in repentance and pleads for mercy, he'll be restored. It's called repentance, folks. Psalm 51, 8 and 9 says it in David's prayer. Let me hear joy and gladness again, Lord. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. This means knowing yourself with a brutal honesty. Speaking about yourself plainly and bluntly before God. Telling him what you know. And it can be painful. But I can tell you, Christ heals broken people and broken places. His power remakes you. Not always in an instant. It may take time. But over time, his healing can and will make you stronger right at your broken place. I pray that you'll have the kind of honest repentance before him to find that out. Our Father, thank you for Peter and his wonderful, honest humanity, his bumbling words, his overconfidence, his brashness. He represents us pretty well. Thank you for loving him. Thank you for that look that he saw and prized so much that he had to tell Luke about it later on. Thank you for your forgiveness that helps us be whole no matter how badly we've messed up. We thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen.